It's wonderful to see you all and to be with you guys this morning. Um, our scripture passage this morning is from Romans 8. It's Romans 8, 26 through 39, if you care to turn there with me. It's on page 944 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who has raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. I think Jeremy said earlier that this might be one of the most encouraging passages in the Bible. I'm going to go a step further and say that for me, it is the most encouraging passage in the Bible. Which is saying a lot, because the Bible is an entirely encouraging book. But this is a great text. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to unfold it for us. Father, I thank You for what's written in this passage. Because these are not mere words. These are words that are powerfully true. And Father, we are desperately in need of hearing these kinds of words to encourage our faith and our hope and to empower us, Lord, because these words are true, to live like they're true. To live for You unashamedly and boldly and confidently. And Lord, I, I pray that knowing that we don't always feel that way. But our feelings are subject to our flesh and our failings, but they're not necessarily what's true. So root us in what's true and change our feelings. Help us to feel and to believe what's true. I pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry, I'm really thirsty. It's just water. I don't do coffee. I wish I did sometimes, but I don't. Um, I think Andy mentioned last week that I was in California last weekend. I was out attending a wedding. Um, and I know that he mentioned and just asked you to be praying for me while I was there, which I really appreciated. I think it probably got chuckles, like why pray for a guy who's in Malibu? But I, um, I was there for the wedding, but I, I did stay a few extra days because I really felt like I needed it. Um, I needed, a, I needed a, a retreat, a spiritual retreat. And... Uh, I'm really thankful for the opportunity to be able to take that. And I, I'm telling you that because I'm, I'm, I'm sort of starting off 
this sermon with um, with an admission to you this morning, and that's that I've been battling through a bout of spiritual depression lately, and I needed that. I, I just I needed some time to get with the Lord. Um, and I, when I say that, I don't want to oversell it. Uh, I, I'm not battling anything near clinical depression. Um, I'm sure there's some of you today who are battling far greater depressions than uh, anything I've ever experienced. But but the reality is, I, I've been feeling a real discouragement, and I think for a while. And I, I haven't really been able to put my finger on it. I've been trying to put my finger on it. But I, I listened to uh, Sherwin's sermon last week, and I, I was reading through this text uh, while I was away, and I think... I think the passage from last Sunday really sums up well what I've been feeling. And I want to point you back to it. Verses 18 to 23 of chapter 8 here in Romans. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's a wonderfully encouraging thing to hear. Verse 19, he, he talks more about what those sufferings are though. For, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And as I've, I've thought about that little section of text and, and meditated on it, I thought this week, that's been a good description of me. The groaning part. The, the longing part. And, 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 and I've, I think what I've been sensing is that I've, I've just been feeling the brokenness of the world a lot lately. Um, I feel the weight of sin. And I, I feel my own sin but I feel the sin of others. It's just, it's kind of that looking around and just sort of seeing just darkness. And I'll be honest, when I went to California, I went to go to this wedding. The wedding was uh, my, my best friend from high school, a guy who, who walked with me uh, through some of the most formative years of my, my own faith. And, and yet I know that for the last 25 years or so, since we parted ways, uh, I, I, I've not had a lot of confidence in how he's been walking with the Lord, but to go to his wedding, it was very obvious to me that he's not at all. And that everybody who was there around me at this wedding was just, there was this palpable sense of empty spirituality. It just felt dark. And, that, and it just sort of highlighted for me like what I've been seeing so much of in the world around me lately that's got me so discouraged. You just kind of look around. You say, "Where's, where's the hope?" And so I think my own malaise has sort of been wrapped up in this general sense of hopelessness and toil that comes with when 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 we stop waiting patiently with hope, like Paul describes here, and we just we instead we just get consumed by all the decay. And I'm only admitting that to you because I think you can relate. Can you relate? So all that said, I have some good news for you. I think my own fog is starting to lift. And Romans 8 has been a helpful part of my recovery. So I'm really encouraged and excited to talk about Romans 8 with you this morning. And I'm praying that God will, will lift us all to the heights of His glory here uh, because it's, it's, it's so good. This is my favorite chapter of the Bible. 
Romans 8, as we spent the last couple of Sundays in it, uh, really has been about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Right? I mean, we, 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 we start off with this great, this great declaration in verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's sort of the summation of all the gospel doctrine that Paul's been bringing about. I, I do the things that I don't want to do, and I, I don't do the things that I do want to do, and I'm conflicted. There's flesh that's at war with the Spirit in me, and oh, wretched man that I am. But, but what's true about the gospel is this, because Jesus is my hope, because Jesus is my salvation, because my faith is in what He does and not what I do, I know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's awesome. And then Paul goes in to talk all about what's true then for those of us who are in Christ Jesus and how are we reminded that there's no condemnation. And he talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He begins with, and this is what Jorge preached a couple weeks ago in verses 2-8, through it's the Holy Spirit who now lives in us. It's Jesus' own Spirit who indwells us and He helps us to fulfill the law. He helps us to live the way that we couldn't live before. Right? Because we were, we were under this condemnation about all the ways that we failed. But now because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but a Spirit-enabled uh, holiness that's being brought about, we can fulfill the law. And He helps us, the Spirit, put down the flesh that wars against our desires to fulfill the law. That's verses 9-13. through 13. And then as Sherwin taught us last week, the Holy Spirit assures us also of our adoption as sons and daughters of God. He not only helps us to live the way God intended us to live, but He assures us that we can because we're His children. And that we've been adopted as such. And finally, as Sherwin ended with, verses 18-23, to 23, He is the foretaste and the guarantee of the inheritance that we have as the children of God. That what God has promised to Jesus, His own Son, He promises to all of us who are in Jesus, His Son, we're heirs. We get to live out the full rights of sons and daughters for eternity. We're, we have royal inheritance awaiting us. And the Spirit is the guarantee of that. But as we round now into my text, verses 26 and following, there's there's one more important ministry of the Holy Spirit that Paul highlights here, and it, it really ministered to me this week in my own spiritual depression as I was studying it. And it's the final ministry of the Spirit that Paul discusses here in chapter 8 before he's going to move into how all of this Holy Spirit work in our lives should be viewed and depended upon for radically confident, stable, secure Christian identity and living. And that's where we're headed this morning. That, that we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna sense how we have, we have a radically confident, radically confident, stable, secure identity in Christ that helps us to live. But before we, we get there, he, he mentions this last ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I want us to consider verses 26 and 27 that Janessa began to read. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So, Paul's saying, look, you have the Spirit in you. He helps you to live a holy life. He sanctifies you. He, he helps you to fulfill the law. And he's, he's, the, he's the assurance that, that all the things that God has promised you about who you are in Christ are true. You are sons and daughters. But, but there's one thing that happens sometimes in the Christian life. And it's, it's again, it's what I started with. It's what I think I've been experiencing. Sometimes there's just this sense that you can't put your finger on that something's not right. You forget all of those promises, or, or even if you haven't forgotten them, you, you sometimes fail to, to grasp them. You know, you're trying to live and believe these things, but you just sense this, there's this malaise about you because you're looking around and you're seeing brokenness and you're, you're doubting sometimes. 
Like, God, I believe that you're for me. I believe your promises are true, but why? Why all this darkness? And why does it get to me sometimes? Why does it just sort of take my legs out from under me sometimes? And sometimes I don't know how to describe that to God. Sometimes I don't know how to express that to God. I just sort of sit there just feeling kind of empty. And, and so here's the wonderful promise for me that, that really encouraged me this week is when I'm feeling like that, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm saying honestly, right now, Lord, that's the way I'm feeling. He says, my spirit is in you to talk to me in ways that you can't. My spirit is in you to search your heart and, and all those things that you don't know how to put your finger on, he knows. Because he searches your heart and he knows. I know it. God knows everything. And so I can search within you. I'm in you. And find these things that you can't describe and you can't even groan about. Your groanings ran out. But mine don't. This is what God says to us. Mine don't. My spirit can, can utter those things that are too deep for you to even comprehend because He knows what's going on inside of you. He knows your heart. He knows your longings. And He knows my will. What are we supposed to pray for when we pray? We should be praying for the will of God. You know why sometimes you struggle to pray? You don't know what to pray. God, I don't even know. I don't even know what your will is. I just don't know. And the Spirit says, I know. And I'll, I'll minister to you and through you. I'll, I'll keep the connection with the Father going, even when you feel like you can't. That's tremendously good news for me and you, right? For us. You feel that malaise like, oh. The promise that we have in Scripture is that the deposit of the Spirit in us guarantees that we are never, ever disconnected from the Father. Even when you feel like you are, if you're a Christian, you are never, ever disconnected from the Father. His ministry to you is always on full tilt. Because His Spirit lives in you. That's awesome. And so Paul, having said all these things about the Spirit, he enables you to fulfill the law. He helps you to put down your flesh. He assures you that you're a son or a daughter. He's the foretaste and the guarantee of your inheritance. And He even ministers in you, for you, when you can't. When, that's, when, you, when you grasp that, to the best of your ability to grasp it, it changes your perspective on life. As a Christian, it gives you a, a new outlook on, on your life that should lead you to life and joy. Look at verse 28. Right after he talks about this ministry, he says this, and we know. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. I love how this verse begins. And we know. Because it's, you see the contrast with verse 26? Verse 26 says there's things that we don't know. Sometimes we don't know how to pray. Sometimes we don't know how to deal with the, the darkness around us. We don't know. And when we don't know, that's when the Spirit ministers to us. But here's the thing. Because we know that the Spirit ministers to us, we can know this. Everything in your life, Christian, God is sovereign over and is working together through for your good. All things. How many things? All. 
all things. I think this verse serves as the main idea for the rest of the chapter. It's a statement of fact meant to encourage and embolden believers as they live in this already not yet tension that we live in. Right? Here's the promises of God. They're all true. You still live in a dark world. And you still feel it sometimes. That's already, you have this, but we're not quite yet fully realizing it. So here's, here's this truth in the tension of that that we cling to that emboldens us. Even now, when you're going through the stuff that's dark, God is at work through all of it for your good. Now, I want to put this verse on the shelf for a few minutes and unpack all the supporting verses that follow and then come back to it as a conclusion because I do think it's the main idea. God works everything for the good for those who love Him. Let's see how Paul fills that out and sort of proves it out. Verses 29-30. through 30. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Let me just nutshell those two verses for you in one sentence. It's this. God left nothing up to you or to chance in securing your eternal position as beloved sons or daughters and co-heirs of His immeasurable royal riches in Christ. God left nothing up to you or to chance in securing your eternal position as a beloved son or daughter and as a co-heir of His immeasurable royal riches in Christ. I'll come back to that again. But let's look at these words that he uses. He starts off with those whom he foreknew. Foreknew. We look at that word foreknew, foreknowledge. It's not as in modern English where we would assume it means that God knew something was going to happen before it happened. Okay? He had foreknowledge of something. Uh, in other words, what Paul isn't saying is that God knew you were going to become a Christian before you became a Christian. That's true, but that's not what he's saying. All right. Uh, if he said that, and it was just simply to say it as that God didn't have much to do with that other than the fact that He could see down the road that you would one day choose to become a Christian and He knew that, then that would fly in the face of everything that Paul's been saying so far in this whole book, which is that we are saved not by our own merit or initiative, but solely by the grace and mercy of God. Foreknowledge in the Bible is used differently than just he knew ahead of time that it was going to happen. Foreknowledge in the Bible, to know in the Bible, biblically expresses a deep personal relationship, a care, and an affection for. John Murray writes this. He says, no is used in, in, in a sense practically synonymous with love. So in other words, we could say for new is to say for loved. Those whom God for loved. Tim Keller equates God's foreknowledge with, with that He has set His love on us. And John Stott translates it as He has watched over us. Those whom God foreknew. Those whom God set His love on beforehand. Who He has already foreloved. This fits with what Moses says in Deuteronomy 7 when he talks about God's people, the Israelites. And he says this. He says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. Not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set His love on you and chosen you. 
For you are the fewest of all people, but it's because the Lord loves you. That's it. Why did God choose His people? Because He loves them. Before they even knew it. Paul's saying God has loved you long before you were born. Christian, God loved you long before you were born. He knew you. He loved you before He knit you together in your mother's womb. He had already written your name in the book of life before He created the world. That's what the Scripture tells us. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. We love because He first loved us. 1 John 4. That is incredible and stunning information to process, isn't it? God knew and loved you long before you existed. And that's just the beginning of God's work in your life. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Predestined. Now this is a word that's well understood in modern English because it actually means exactly what it sounds like it means. He predestined you. He predestined to know you and to love you. The the believer's destination, in other words, has been preset. Just like you, you input an address into your GPS or into Google Maps, right? You, 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 put, you put it in there and you hit enter and what happens is that the program predetermines then the route that you're going to take to get to your destination, right? It's, it sort of lays it out for you. It maps it out for you. And it's, it's very much the same way with God in your salvation. God has already set your destination and mapped out the path by which you're going to take to get there. And what's the destination? Here's the destination. It's Christ-likeness. God has predetermined your Christ-likeness, believer. That what is true of Jesus would be true of you. Namely, that you would be a son or a daughter of God. That's what he says here. He says he did this in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, God wanted many heirs. He wanted many heirs. Jesus came to be the first so that through Jesus, many more would be able to come. And God has predetermined, if you're a Christian, that you would be one of those heirs. Predestination means that all this was decided beforehand. Again, God didn't let you or chance come in the way of Him fulfilling what He wanted to do. It's the same word, by the way, predestination, that's used in Acts chapter 4 that describes God's sovereign eternal plan for the Gospel itself. Through the crucifixion of Jesus, if we looked at Acts chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, but, but in verses 27 and 28, the disciples prayed this. They said, For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand, God, your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God didn't just know that the crucifixion was going to happen. He purposed it to happen. And the same is true of your salvation and your adoption in Christ. He purposed it. John Stott puts it like this. He says, clearly a decision is involved in the process of becoming a Christian, but it's God's decision before it can be yours. This is not to deny that we decided for Christ and freely, but to affirm that we did so only because He had first decided for us. 
God's decision for us not only precedes our decision for Him, but it also compels it. This is what we call irresistible grace. And I, and I want to talk more about that, but let me bring the next part of the sequence into play here, and then I'll explain what I mean by irresistible grace. Those whom He predestined, what's the third word? He also called. Called. So at some point in your life, Christian, God brought you into awareness of His eternal plan to have chosen you to be His child. You heard the Gospel, right? And you understood it. At least enough to respond to it. There was a, there was a moment when the light bulb went on, right? The words you heard, and though perhaps you'd heard them before, maybe you'd even heard them many, many times before, the words you heard in that moment ceased being mere words and became power. And you believed. Where we started off in Romans chapter 1, Paul says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And in 1 Thessalonians 1 verses 4 and 5, he further demonstrates this. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You go, ah. So how do, we, how do we know that mere words have become power? The power of the Gospel in your moment of calling is made evident by a full conviction of the Holy Spirit. There's this sense deep within your gut that tells you you're a sinful person who desperately needs a Savior. You desperately need mercy. You desperately need forgiveness. And that conviction is coupled with the firm belief that God is freely and graciously offering His mercy to you through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. And here's where irresistible grace plays out. In that moment of powerful conviction and belief. And by the way, I, I want to be clear to say that I know for some of you that moment is ingrained in your, it's burned in your memory as a, as a moment indeed. And for some of you, it's been a process. God's moments are sometimes awfully long. Alright? But a moment nonetheless of conviction and faith. And in that moment, this is what your irresistible grace is all about. In that moment, God's predetermined purpose to draw you to Himself was unstoppable. Unstoppable. Now, I, I think people sometimes people wrestle with that concept that, that God's grace can't be resisted. Because they think of it like, like I'm thinking of like a Star Trek or a Star Wars movie with a tractor beam. Right? where the big mothership shoots out the tractor beam to the, the little ship full of rebels and, and they're getting sucked in and they don't want to. Like, no! We're stuck in the tractor beam! That's not the way irresistible grace works, okay? It's not like a tractor beam where you're going, I don't want this! It's, it's much more like the appearance of a waterfall oasis to a parched and dying man who's been wandering the desert for days. <laughs> you just... And you see it, and, and, and you can't not get up with every ounce of strength within you and run to the water because you need it. That's what it's like. It's irresistible grace. And this, Paul says, this is all God's doing. Because as we saw in verse 28, we are called according to His purpose. Those whom He called, He also justified. He justified you. 
God has set His love on us from all eternity and He has drawn us to Himself through His effectual call so that you would hear and you would believe the Gospel by faith so that you might be justified by faith. I know much of our our whole series in Romans thus far has been focused on what justification by faith is all about. So I'm not going to repeat it all here this morning. You can always go back and listen to the sermons online or read through the text yourself. But here's the gist of it. Here's the gist of it. That by faith in Jesus, we have been declared righteous before a holy God. Sinners though we are, by faith in Jesus, we have been declared righteous before a holy God because of and through Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross. He died the death that I deserve to die because I am a sinner. He paid the penalty of my sin. So through His death and through His resurrection three days later to defeat and overcome death forever and sin forever. And all of this counted as ours if we're in Him. His righteousness counts for you. And His putting away, His paying the penalty for your sin, it counts for you by faith. So what's true of Jesus, again, is true of you. Those who repent and believe in Him. His righteousness is yours. His resurrection is yours. You're united to Him by faith. So God sees you as God sees Him, a son, a daughter. I'm justified. Amen. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What does that mean? I think we just need to look back at verses 18-21 to where we see again this this sort of already not yet. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed. Creation is longing for this moment when, when God will bring His glory about. Right? He's going to restore all things to Himself. He's going to make right all that was broken. When Jesus comes back and restores it, and a new heaven and a new earth come about, all the brokenness goes away. All of your brokenness goes away. Right? That's glory. That's being glorified. And, and, and so here's what, what Paul's saying. Glorification is what we have to look forward to. But, here's the crazy thing about it. He uses the past tense of the verb. He doesn't say everybody who, who God has justified, He will glorify. He says He has glorified. Figure that out. Well, uh, you can figure it out. Here's what's so awesome to grasp. It's not yet, but it's already. In what sense? In that we can look at God's foreknowledge of us, His forelove for us, We can look at our predestination according to His sovereign purposes. We can can look at the power of our calling and the freeing reality of our justification through Christ and in these things have complete confidence in the present that His past actions have future results. It's already secured. Secured is our future Glory. That is mind-blowing truth. I'm 41 years old, not yet 42 this summer. My existential awareness only stretches back at best to 1974. That sounds like a long time to some of you. To others of you, it probably doesn't at all. But here's the thing. God's awareness and love for me stretches back through eternity past. And His love and awareness for me will never cease to envelop me through eternity future. 
I want you to catch that. This is, again, this is sort of bigger than you can actually comprehend, but try. My salvation and my relationship with God, your salvation and your relationship with God is bigger than you and is only matched by the bigness that God alone has. So the conclusion, again, is the summation statement I gave you in the beginning. God left nothing up to you or to chance in securing your eternal position as a beloved son or daughter and co-heir of His immeasurable royal riches in Christ. So here's the, here's the great question. That's good news. That is incredible doctrine. What does it mean for you and me and believers in Jesus? Okay? Well, let's put feet to this. I mean, I think you're already beginning to. You're encouraged, right? But, but how does this doctrine affect the way we live? And, and Paul's answer to this is nothing short of awesome. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? What things, by the way, are we talking about here? Well, I think, I think a couple of things that we're talking about. First of all, the things that we moan and groan about and we long for. What do we say about those things? And then all this good doctrine that He's just given us about what God has done for us, those things. What do we, we put it all together. What do we say about these things? Here's what we say. If God is for us, who can be against us? Talk about a rhetorical question. Who could be against us? Verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? See, Paul's rooting this promise again in the Gospel. God sent His Son. He gave up His own Son. He died for you. He emptied Himself for you. He couldn't give any more than Himself. And He did give all of Himself for you. And if God's willing to do that, what's left for us to believe but that God will in fact then give us everything He's just promised here to give us? By the way, be, be careful in, in reading that, that sentence because I think there's prosperity gospel teaching that tries to take sentences like this out of context and say that God's for you. Who can be against you? If God sent His Son, He'll give you everything. So get ready for bank accounts to explode and houses to come and cars and relational happiness. Get ready! That's not what God's promising here. Do you understand that? He's promising something better than that. Those things are perishable. God's promising you foreknowledge. Predestined love. A calling that justifies and glorifies you. You will inherit the inheritance of a son. You don't think God's capable of giving that to you? Look back at the cross and see with which, what length He went to secure it. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God elect? That's a good question. You know who brings charges against God's elect? If, if I'm considering myself God's elect, a lot of people do. Namely, firstly, me. God, I doubt that I'm, I'm worthy of this. The, the failures that I have in life, the sin that I continue to commit, it, it shows me, God, that I'm not really worthy of this. I don't, I don't always act like a son, God. I, I haven't worked hard enough this week. Why am I spiritually depressed? Maybe I haven't done enough. 
And there's plenty of other people, including Satan himself, who love to whisper in my ear and tell me all the ways in which I fall short. Who is there to bring a charge against God's elect? I love this answer. It is God who justifies. And He's already done it. Remember, it was past tense. Nobody can bring a charge. Nobody can, can take my feet out from under me. Nobody can make me doubt, including me, should make me doubt that these promises are true. Because God justifies. And He did it all. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, He rose again. So condemnation, as verse 1 says, has no place in the life of the believer because the condemnation already happened on Jesus. He died for me, for you, but He rose! So it's over! Nobody has to die now. Not if they're in Christ. And I love this. Not only was He raised, but He's at the right hand of God. Right now, interceding for us. So that when those condemnations come and when those charges are brought, Jesus is standing next to the Father and proclaiming on our behalf, no, I paid that already. No, that's a son. That's a daughter. My spirit is in that person. Father, they are justified. And if that's true, then who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress? You had, you had a bad week. You, 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 had, you had things go bad in your life. Things that, that made you doubt whether or not God was really for you. Can they really separate you from the love of Christ? No. Bad circumstances. Bad health. Nothing. Shall persecution or famine? Nakedness or danger? Or sword? You know, some of the, the, the hardest times to believe the promises of God is when those things happen. Right? Persecution. You, you, you feel, you know, like every, everyone around you is against you, is knocking you down, and, and you look around like I did at that wedding, and you think, am I the only one here? Am I the only one here who knows that there's a God in heaven? Some of those times are the most difficult. Danger. Nakedness. Sword. I mean, I haven't experienced that yet. Some believers do. And Paul reminds us here, you know what? It's written that you will. For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's written in the Old Testament. It's not news. It happens. We know it. God's sovereign over it. He told you it was going to happen. This doesn't dethrone God. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Jesus has victory over all of these things. And because you're in Him, so do you. So do you. So that Paul can say here, I am confident, I am sure that nothing, 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 nothing can separate you from God's love. Nothing can. Height, depth, nothing. Rulers, spiritual authorities, demonic influence, nothing. Powers, nothing. Things that are happening in your life today, the things that you're worrying about tomorrow, not going to do it. Nothing. Height, depth, anything else in creation, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. 
So here's the confidence that you have, believer. You go back to verse 28. I said this was sort of the, the main idea of the whole Scripture. And you can read it now in light of all that we've been told. We know, we know this. Those who love God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you love God, and here's the good news, you can only love God because He first loved you. So if you love God, there's a tremendous amount of confidence in you this morning. God loves you too. He loved you first. If that's who you are, those of us who love God, all things, how many things? All things work together for good. All things work together as a part of God's plan to know you, to predestine you, to call you, to justify you, to sanctify you and glorify you. Everything in your life is at work there. Nothing can derail the plan, the GPS coordinates that Jesus has already set you on for Christ-likeness and future glory. Nothing can. And in fact, all of it in God's sovereignty will work to get you there. So bad stuff does happen. And you know what? Sometimes you sin and consequences of your sin happen. That's on you. God is still sovereign over it to work even those things out for your sanctification and your glorification. Get that. Everything is working because God is working and loves you and has set on you His love to glorify you it's all working. Nothing can separate us. Spiritual malaise needs to be reminded of that. And I thank God that He's reminded me of that this week. And I pray that He reminds you of that this week. And as one more means of reminder, we're going to come to this table right now and we're going to eat and drink and celebrate the broken body and shed blood of Jesus to remind us again that all of this is true. We fellowship with Him around the table as sons and daughters. I'm going to ask the elders to come forward as I pray. Father, I thank You for this incredibly good news. I thank You, Lord, that it's true. I thank You, Lord, that it is encouraging. And I thank You, Lord, that there's nothing that can undo it. So help us to believe it, Lord. Help us to live in light of it. Help us to be confident and emboldened by it. Because, Father, our tendency this week, I know, because I know mine, it's going to be to, to sometimes run the other way. It's going to be sometimes to, to sort of hide and, and feel uh, the weight of everything and that there's hopelessness. It's going, to, it's going to cause me to want to withdraw from the world rather than exist in it. So, Lord, help us to remember that no... We are more than conquerors in Christ that nothing can separate us from Your love. And that compels us then to live like it, to share it, to proclaim it. Because God, in Your sovereign work, somebody proclaimed it to us. Praise God. And we need to proclaim it to somebody else who's waiting desperately in their position of darkness to be set free. So use us for Your glory as people who are wholly sold out that there's nothing that can separate us from Your love in Christ. Thank You in His name. Amen.